Hello, and welcome to episode four of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm one of your hosts, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by... Yep, I'm Dale. I'm representing the Seeker or Christian side. Hey, and uh, you know what? We're going to get right into it. I just want to say thank you to everyone for making uh, the blog and this podcast a, uh, a success. And we have a lot of feedback uh, and responses to cover. I uh, yesterday own uh, the yesterday as, as we record this uh, on the unbelievable discussion board. I invited uh, uh, people to just uh, jump in and I let them know what we're going to talk about and give us your comments and let us know how you would argue this position, how you would help Dale out, how you would help me out. And you responded in a big way. So we're going to read uh, through a lot of that and uh, interact with that. We, we can't get to it all. And a lot of it, we, we truncate it uh, and, you know, used a few sentences here and there, maybe a paragraph here and there. It, none of it represents all of what anyone had to say. But I want to thank everyone uh, for doing that, and also for those who left feedback at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for that. We'll be reading that feedback off uh, later in the show. You can also get in touch with us uh, via skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. And with that, it's time to talk about evil God. Ready, Dale? I'm ready. Okay, so uh, <laughs> this think. was a <laughs> this this was a topic that um, that I initiated uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, Dale responded to. We'll be uh, so if you're hearing this uh, podcast right now, and you obviously are, you can go to uh, the blog uh, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com, and you can read the write up. So this conversation is a follow up of that write up. Here is the evil god dilemma uh, in brief. And uh, for more of an explanation, uh, I, ex- I uh, just invite you to read the, the, the blog. But just, uh, just in brief, based on my moral uh, uh, instincts, on, on my most honest appraisal, the God of the Bible is evil. And so even if I were to come to faith that this God is real, I would still, I would no longer be an atheist, but I would still think that he was evil. And so the question uh, to my interlocutor is, what should I do? And uh, I put together a few options. Uh, I don't know if he uh, likes any of these options. I think they're all losing options. Uh, And so uh, hopefully he's got something better. Uh, But option one is obey God and assume that my conscience is unreliable. Option two is to obey God and assume that my conscience is reliable. <laughs> in, in other words, just go against my conscience. Option three is to disobey God until I decide that I'm wrong about him. So maybe at some point I decide that he's good. But, you know, Dale would tell me, yeah, you should disobey him until you believe he's good. Option four is to ad- adopt a divine command theory that goodness is whatever God says or does. So in other words, I just need to change my opinions about what good is. uh, And then once my opinion is that God is always good because he can't be anything else but good, then then do that. So in other words, change my change my conscience. And option five is hopefully something that Dale will come up with, which is other. And so with that in mind, since this was a a question for Dale that I presented with him, I'm going to give him the balance of the time. Go. Okay, so I think that 
out of your your options, I didn't categorize it this way, but I, I guess I would say not that uh, you. I, I think that you should take number three. If you truly believe God exists, that the Christian God exists, and He's evil to you. Uh, I don't think a Christian should advise you just obey that God or worship that God anyways. You, you can't fake uh, loving someone that you think is morally abominable. Um, however, what I would say is I, I think it's sort of similar to what I would advise you if, if you don't, if you're an honest skeptic. I, I would say that I think you should try to meet certain conditions um, such as Number one, being sincerely open-minded to the truth of the fact that God might be uh, good, unbeknownst to you. Um, The second is you should also continuously, uh, actively seek the truth about this. Um, Don't don't cut yourself off from other avenues. You know, actually proactively seek answers. If an opportunity comes up, um, you know, like, oh, I, I haven't heard this interpretation of this verse, you know, scan it for yourself. See if it actually makes sense or makes a difference. Um, and, and finally, once you achieve that, that change, if you find that answer, you should be willing at that point to trust and to, you know, place your faith in that God. Okay, yes, you really are a good God. I just never, I never understood that. I didn't have the full context as to what these particular problematic Bible verses were trying to say. Um, so are these a, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that, you know, once achieved, God is necessarily obligated to reveal the truth to you? Uh, I don't think I don't think I would go that far. Um, but I would say that these are definitely um, a set of criteria, set of conditions that could uh, lead God to revealing himself to you. And therefore, you shouldn't cut yourself off from fulfilling these obligations. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll pass it back to, to David for the counter there. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong. You're saying that if I do all of the things that you suggest I should do, that God still may find it uh, sufficient in his will not to reveal his goodness to me. Is that correct? It's possible. Uh, there could be an additional conditions. Uh, in terms of my best guess, I think that if you fulfill these these three, um, that should be sufficient um, for God to reveal himself. But it could be that um, there needs to be something else because I, I myself uh, said that, for example, um, well, I met these three conditions a year ago. Uh, in fact, I think I met them better than I, I do right now, if I'm honest. Uh, um, as a, But... There's also that Molinistic factor that could also be at play. So, you know, God providentially knows when the right time is, so long as you're fulfilling these conditions to reveal himself or something like that. Um, Okay, but last week you did suggest that God would definitely reveal himself before uh, the consequences of disbelief uh, came came to be. So you... You must then be saying that if I do these things, then at, and continue to do them, then at some point God must reveal Himself. Yeah. Is that is that true or not? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, so I want to I want to uh, 
push back on at least one of those things, and I might have to get you to give me uh, that list again. But um, so one of the things that you wrote in your article is that when I said, I don't think that I could ever think of God as a moral being, you suggested that that might be uh, a bit hard, hard hearted and stubborn. And so that, that idea might be keeping God from ever revealing himself. The fact that I think he's evil and that I don't think that there's anything that he could do to convince me would be keeping him from then trying to convince me. Did I understand that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think that okay. you should. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to uh, defeat that. And I don't, I, that may just be an impasse because I think he's evil and I don't think that you can convince me otherwise based on the reasons why I think he's evil. Would you, would you care to know why I think he's evil? Um, I, I do. Um, but, but first, okay, actually, no, yes, I would go ahead. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, I, as I, as I wrote in the article, uh, I used uh, the uh, sacrifice, the sacrificial atonement, as an example of why I think he's evil. Now, I don't think it's the only reason. I just think it's reason enough. So I believe that human sacrifice, or the sacrifice of any sentient being for that matter, is an evil thing. That, because the idea is that you're taking an innocent person and you are killing them so that you can forgive a guilty person. And I think that sort of thing is barbaric and wrong every time, under every situation. Uh, And it does not matter if you say, well, but Jesus volunteered. Because the fact that he needed to volunteer, the fact that this is the rule for forgiveness, that in itself is evil. And what we learn in the New Testament is that there can be no forgiveness without blood. That is a fundamental rule of forgiveness in in the moral economy of the God of the Bible. And so because that is true, I don't think that we can ever get around my notion that I think he's evil, unless you say, no, the sacrifice is all all a lie and that there was no sacrifice. As long as we're talking about a a sacrifice of of an innocent person, for the uh, uh, redemption of a guilty person, because there can be no forgiveness without blood, that is an unredeemable evil stance that I can't think around. Okay, so just to clarify then, it's not so much for you that the fact that an innocent person is sacrificing themselves, like I don't think you would object to a firefighter uh, who sacrifices his life to save someone from a burning building. But it's more the reason that innocent person is being sacrificced for, you know, for the punishment of your sins. That's that's the part, the real part that you find to be immoral or irredeemable. Is that correct? I think that's fair. Uh, I, I did think about the fireman example. Uh, and the, the fact of the matter is, if we as humans could find another way to save people from the fire, we would do that. We would never, if, if we had another way to save people, but we sent firemen in there to save them anyway and, and die, I think that would be evil. But we humans are limited. So we don't have another way to save people. 
In this case, God made the rules of this particular ecosystem. And in his ecosystem that he built from the ground up, there can be no forgiveness without blood. That is, that is the fundamental rule of this particular ecosystem. Now, he could have made that rule anything he wanted to, but he made it so that there can be no forgiveness without blood. So uh, in, in the sense of we humans sending fire, firemen in to save human lives, we have no choice. God does have a choice, and he, and he prefers the bloody route. Ah, okay. So if God didn't somehow didn't have a choice in the in the way that um, in the means in terms of achieving our atonement, then you wouldn't see God as irredeemable. If if someone could establish that to you that God is actually just like you know us humans with the firefighters, that He doesn't have an option. Uh, would that be one way that would dispel this objection of yours? Possibly. I would have to think about it. Um... But is that is that an argument that you're prepared to make as a Christian that God didn't have a choice? Yes. Um, so that that's my take on it. I, I think the consequences of sin, it's it's when you get this sin disease type, so to speak, it's a necessary consequence of that that uh, you will experience death, spiritual death, you know, separation from God. It, it's it's. God doesn't have a choice in that regards. He has to punish that sin. And I, I did some quick research last night, so it, it's not going to be satisfactory. We, we might have to revisit the atonement as a separate topic at a later time. Um, but I did do some preliminary research because I wanted to, you know, get it, do a better job at getting at this from on a practical level with your example. Um, so it depends. What What is the reason that God punishes in the first place what why is punishment what is the justification uh for punishment um as philosophers of law take and there's really two main avenues there's a retributionist um you know like you punish me i'm gonna get vengeance and pay you back eye for an eye type type deal um and then there's a consequentialist view and i, I lean more towards the latter um however i Basically, that justifies the use of the punishment for the consequences that result uh, from that punishment. Now, you know, just in terms of well, what what would be consequences of, of someone being punished? So, the first first of all, there could be deterrence. Um, secondly, there's uh, the idea of quarantine or segregation, protecting other people, um, you know, other innocents from further damage down the road by this person. That, that's sort of where the hell view comes in. Um, but then there's also, most importantly, uh, in terms of your atonement issue, the issue of reformation. And it's not just reformation of the person, of the criminal, although I, I think that's one of the consequences of punishment, or should be. It doesn't always work out in real life that way with our prison systems. But there's also reformation of the victims and i think this is what the the retributionist is trying to get at it it redeems the person to some the the victims or the of this of these crimes um through seeing justice served through seeing true proper justice be applied um so in, in the context of jesus being crucified um when jesus pays for our sins uh, this provides, uh, when Jesus is punished for our sins, this provides a, a way that 
we are, those sins can be, um, our characters can be reformed. When we accept Jesus uh, into our hearts and the Holy Spirit redeems our character, it's almost as though part of himself is in us. And this is what, okay, we have this, let's call it a seed uh, of Christ-like character uh, of redemption. And that grows through the process of sanctification. Uh, And upon reaching the point when you go to heaven, it it fully blossoms. You no longer carry the the damage of your sin nature, but you're you're fully Christ-like. You're you're perfect. You you won't commit sins or anything like that. So the, the consequences or benefits of Jesus going through that punishment for us can then be imputed to us. And that's what... A lot, well, those those sins have been dealt with. They've been purged out of me on a character level. I am being transformed. I'm applying the consequences of the punishment without having to go, undergo that punishment. So, if the justification of of getting of being punished can be applied, then that it doesn't matter who's being punished in that case, as long as the consequences can be imputed within the the believer. Um, and just one note, uh, quick, I, I'm not denying forensic justification. It, you know, that's sort of the legal, you're just declared innocent, whether you have got these consequences applied or not. That, that's a biblical position as well. That On a Protestant understanding, that's the justification part, but then the sanctification is what I'm getting at with this consequentialist uh, view of, of justifying punishment. So I'll turn it over to David. Okay, I'm not sure that I'm prepared to argue atonement at that deeper level right now. But I my snap reaction is to say that that can't be right. What <laughs> that sounds like special pleading to me. And here's here's why it's special pleading. You're you're saying that God had no choice but to deal with this wrong by applying a bloody standard to it. And that's just the only way to deal with it. But We humans, when we have a problem with other humans, we don't get to apply the bloody standard. An eye for an eye is wrong. Now, it used to be right, but we don't have to talk about that. It's it's wrong now. No, we're supposed to forgive people. uh, You know, and depending on the Christian, even if a person does not ask for forgiveness, we we should forgive them. Certainly, if a person asks for forgiveness... We should forgive them, but in in no way do we get to say, ah, no, but the thing that you did uh, requires blood. And and so that's that just doesn't fit. You're saying that we need to apply a standard of forgiveness that God does not need to apply. So it's it sounds like you're special pleading for God in that way. Well, I guess it would just be in the sense of like how on a human level, perhaps it could work but i just don't see any way of how it would work like how would you be able to how would you be able to punish uh someone let's say we send them to prison that's a proper actual uh application of the principle of justice and it it absolves you know the consequences of that punishment are achieved um and how would you apply that to the actual criminal who committed the crime in the same way you know when when christ lives in our hearts that it, it it but I, I thought that we weren't supposed to even be thinking about punishing uh, people who do wrong to us. We're supposed to, you know, if they if they take our uh, cloak, we're to give them our undergarment. You know, I don't 
I don't see any uh, thing where we're supposed to be punishing or looking for an eye for an eye type thing. If you steal something from me, at least most Christians that I've talked to, not all of them, but most Christians would say that I should just let that thing go. It's, it's just a thing. And maybe you stole it. Maybe you're sorry. Maybe you used it for drug money. I don't know. You're never going to be able to pay it back. Uh, this is this is the uh, idea behind some of the parables of Jesus. You can't pay it back. I can demand that you be thrown into jail, or I can just forgive you your debt. And the idea is that I'm supposed to just forgive you your debt. So if if I'm supposed to just forgive you your debt, why isn't God? Why why isn't that an option for God to just forgive me my debt? So it's because you can't. Uh, violate the principle of justice. This, this is a ver- These are verses. Um, but when I forgive of the interpretation. you, isn't, isn't that a violation of the principle of justice? If I forgive you, no, because down the road you're you're basically placing your faith in God. Justice will be served. You're not negating that justice will come about. You're just trusting. Okay, God, the fair judge, He will enact a true uh, punishment and serve true justice. So you know that's not my place. Ben- you know, I'll leave that to God. He's going to take care of that. And, you know, let's just, let's let it go for the sake of the gospel, you know, for the sake of love of your neighbor and wanting them to get better. Okay, you stole my coat. You know what? I'm entitled to have that coat back. I'll just let it go. But there's also, on a state level, the Bible, I don't think the Bible teaches anything that the state's not able to punish uh, criminals. That I mean, They're not able to punish them if I don't press charges. Okay, so then I mean, that, you would that be, may that may be different from from one government to another government. So I don't want to uh, say that. I mean, if, if a person is caught robbing my house, they're probably going to go to jail no matter what I say. But there are other crimes that they could commit against me that I would have to file a police report. And if I don't file the report, uh, if I don't show up to court and uh, accuse them, they're going to walk. Yeah. So that's just that's the way the the government that we have is set up to administer its biblical role of, you know, providing for law and order. It, it provides those means, but that doesn't mean he's getting off the hook. He will be punished by God eventually. So as a Christian, really? you can say, so well, that is, not a, that is not an understanding. That unless, so that's, that's a new well, unless, idea. Are you saying this criminal becomes a Christian or are we just assuming he dies as a non-believer or non-skeptic? Well, this criminal may already be a Christian. I, I, so let's just say he's already a Christian, but he still committed okay. a crime. Yep. Okay. So then I, yeah, I have had my be, house robbed by Christians. <laughs> just so you know, I've had a I've had a home burglary. I know who did it. They were Christians. Okay. Let's let's avoid uh, distinctions between true Christians and that sort of thing because I, it, it's hard to imagine that a true Christian would do such a a blatant deliberate sin without uh, let's just say that that's the case so those sins the principle of justice is upheld because jesus pay jesus was punished for those specific sins of those people and the consequences of that punishment are being applied to those criminal believers now i i don't know the the circumstances surrounding that person uh who stole you know your stuff maybe maybe it was just a one-time mistake and they really repented and 
they're you know they're really sorry that they did that i don't you know maybe they were desperate for money or something like that it's still a sin but that was paid for by jesus upholding the principle of justice but yeah you could you could forgive that person okay you're you're truly repentful you know that okay i'm gonna choose to believe you i'll give you a second chance you could do something like that on a human level Okay, so just so this doesn't become the atonement show, I don't want to lose sight of the the fact that I I used this as an example for why I could never think of God as anything less than evil. There's nothing that you've said right now that's changed my mind there. I I still think this atonement scheme is evil, and it seems more evil the more you talk about it. Um, But before I let you go on then, just just as a a short yes or no, and I know there's going to be qualifications, you're allowed to say that, of course, but... If, if I were somehow able to establish for you, and I don't, I'm not sure off the top of my head how I would, but let's say it's true that this kind of punishment, death, which is represented by the shedding of blood, is a necessary consequence of having sin, a sinful nature. If that was true, would that help to solve your problem that, well, God isn't actually redeemable. He's just like a firefighter. He... He, he's got limited options. There's nothing he can do but this, and this is him making the best of a bad situation to save as many people as possible. Well, so... I might say yes on that particular issue, but that's then when, where I would have to go to a, another issue to show you. But I, I would never say yes on that particular issue because okay. I don't think you're describing a, a real thing where God didn't have any options. For instance, if he really didn't have any options, then he's not God. Um, but God is the, the the programmer, if you will. So forgive me for speaking in terms of, of programming. Uh, God set up the consequences of the failure. So he knew that when when the creation program was run, that failure was a possibility. He set up the consequences of what that failure would look like. He could have set up that consequence any way he wanted to. In other words, the universe did not have to fall as a, as a result of humans eating an apple or, or whatever they ate. That's, that's simply a choice that the programmer made. So he doesn't get off the hook by saying, well, that's just the way the program is. No, you wrote the program. Uh, so I don't, I don't see an option where you could actually get God off the hook for that. And as a result, I, I can never think of God as having no other option. And um, so I, and, and human sacrifice is just going to always be wrong. Even, even if I lose the philosophical argument completely, at a practical level, at the end of the day, Human sacrifice is still going to be wrong to me. You're, you're never going to be, argue, be able to argue me around that point. And I think that if you could, I would have to question my own uh, ethical center. And my ethical center right now is pretty grounded in that. Okay. So, yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. And uh, I do think you're right in that sense, at that level, that God did have a choice. There, I think the world that we live in is what some philosophers call the best of all possible worlds, logically possible worlds. But actually, that's, that's not what I believe. I think there's at least two best possible worlds. One where God doesn't create and just exists alone, and 
the one that we currently occupy, where as many people as possible freely choose to be saved and, and that sort of thing. Um, so couldn't God have just avoided this whole need for sacrifice and the fall by just existing alone? Um, if they both have equal overall utilities, I'm always cringe when I use that word because it, it might sound like it's utilitarianism, which it, it isn't exactly, but it's just the best word I can think of to describe what I'm talking about. Um, so the best overall results are the have an equal utility in a in a world possible world where it's just God alone or this world complete with Jesus sacrifice and the fall and all of that. Um, the only reason that God creates is, is for our benefit. It was just, it was truly a free will choice. I, I don't think you can establish if, if the overall utility of this world complete with the fall and all of, you know, the, the crucifixion and all of that horrible stuff is as good as a world in which God exists alone, then morally you can't say God is irredeemable for creating that world because overall the goods, the good outweighs the evil to such an extent that it's the same utility value in of, of a world where God exists. I, I can't prove yeah, but, that. But I'm there's, just, a, there's another option though, uh, Dale, and, which is that God could have created a universe where only the elect uh, existed. So you didn't have to. Uh, let, let's just make up some numbers for uh, for easy discussion. Let's say that twenty percent of everyone that he ever made is is a part of the elect, and eighty percent is a part of the lost, and that's what he knew from the beginning. He could have just avoided the eighty percent. He could have made the elect. They still had free will, uh, but they were they were the people that were always going to choose to do the right thing, and so he could have made a universe where there was only the elect. Uh, so, so no, he couldn't because, molinistically speaking, everything is connected to everything else and has a, a consequence. If I, if I choose to eat a cookie this morning, that might result in 500 people being saved somehow, or, you know, without, without this specific tree, I'm looking out outside my window. Uh, if, I, if God created a world in which that tree didn't exist, how do you, how do you know more or less people would be saved? Um, it's, it's just, I take it on faith that, you know, I can't prove this, but it, it's an equal possibility that, universe we exist in is is the best one of all the creative worlds it's the one that results in okay as many if, if what you're I, if what you're saying is the only way that the 20 percent could be saved is for there to be an 80 percent created that would be lost i would still say that's evil so we don't you don't you don't actually you're not actually creating a scenario where i would think that god was less evil well let's say let's say there's a possible world in which god only creates six people but all six of them are saved is that a better possible world than the world in which we live? We live in, in which, you know, whatever, two million souls are saved, but it also includes, you know, Jesus having to die for our sins and also includes the fall and all the wars and all of that stuff. I don't think you can establish that a, a world with six saved and zero damned souls is better than the world in which we live, where there's, you know, two million saved or... No, no. Okay. Well, how, okay. how do you prove that? I, I, well, I don't know that I can prove that, but I can tell you about my moral instinct. My moral instinct is that this world where there's six people saved and no people lost is better than a world where six billion are saved and one person is lost. 
I, I so you can you can make the numbers as lopsided as you want to to justify that one person being lost. Though I think that's a moral choice. That in when God makes that choice, I I suggest that that is a moral evil, and we can we can never get around that because I'm never going to change my mind that that is evil. And so bringing us around to the conversation, that is the point of of all of this. I, it is not fair to say that I'm being hard-hearted. I'm not being hard-hearted. I'm answering the call of my moral uh, conscience. And my, and my conscience tells me that that is evil. And so unless you, uh, you know, I don't know, you, maybe you give me a lobotomy, and then I don't think it's evil anymore. But as long as I think that's evil, then my choice is to uh, follow this evil God that I think is evil or not follow this evil God. So I was I was thinking I was tempted for a second to say, well, like, how do you know that based on our conversation last week? But, uh, you know, like, how well, how do you know that? Is is that a properly basic belief from your moral conscience? You just know this. This isn't the case. But actually, no, I, we don't even need to. It, but it's but it's not. It's not a properly basic belief at all. It is the belief that I have based on. Uh, the the size brain I have, the function of the brain I have, the uh, environment that I in culture that I was raised in, um, all of these things uh, play a part in that, and so that okay. that is that is what makes up my conscience. Okay, so yeah, if you're if you l- let me finish, I was just going to say that that uh, this that question doesn't isn't relevant to what your article about because your article is just about however you get that psychological certainty or psychological predisposition that this is evil okay well you you've got that psychological state whether it's wrong right or wrong um i was leading somewhere but i i've forgotten what point i was trying to make um well you see if you can think about it i i said just in uh passing you know you could give me a lobotomy Actually, I want to I want to take a look at that as a serious option. God could give me a lobotomy if if my brain is functioning improperly, so that I do not, in fact, understand what is good and bad. He could fix that so that I did understand what is good and bad, and then I would be able to make a, a proper decision. But if my problem is that I've got my brain is malfunctioning, I still can't be held accountable for thinking that God is evil because that is my brain. And and if God doesn't want to fix that because I don't I don't have some other um you know circumstances where where I'm I'm doing just the right things to make him want to fix it, that's hardly my fault if my brain is faulty. Sure. So I I would I would agree. I wouldn't say your brain. I would say a set of cognitive and or spiritual faculties. That's how I would phrase it. But um um what you're saying, yeah, that that's why I'm giving you the advice. Yeah, you you shouldn't worship such a god in the moment because you have this psychological predisposition. Uh, you should. I don't think it's correct to advise you. Just you know, suck it up. Uh, worship him anyways. Just fake it, um, kind of thing. I, I don't think that's the right advice. So, but I would say in the meantime, make sure you're meeting at least these three conditions. If there's something else. Uh, you know, then you can think of that. But at least you're doing your best to be open to the fact that you could somehow be persuaded and have your psychological predisposition lobotomized and transformed or something like that. 
if you the minute you say nope I don't, I don't care everything's irredeemable i don't i don't care what this scholar has to say i'm just not going to look at it if you're not meeting that condition um for the rest of your life then you're taking away you're giving god an excuse not to have to reveal the truth to you you're you're not open to it anyways you're, you don't well, care god should, god should be bigger than that and he he should be able to get past whether I'm open or not. And the fact of the matter is, I'm about as open to the possibility of God as I'm open to the possibility of, of fairies. Uh, now, that's not to say that someone couldn't prove that there are fairies out there, but I'm, I'm not currently looking for uh, evidence. Uh, you know, whether God is good or not, I mean, that would be, again, I'm, I'm about as open to that as I'm open to the idea that Satan is good. Now, maybe someone can make the case that I'm wrong about Satan and that he's good, but I'm not currently uh, interviewing uh, possibilities uh, that Satan is good, and I'm not especially uh, uh, friendly toward uh, you know spending hours of my day pondering and, and that possibility and reading it. Does that mean that I'm closed-minded? Because I have been there. I, you see, you, you forget, I come from the perspective of having believed in God of having once believed that God was good. And toward the end of my walk, I this is not a hypothetical situation as it might seem. I did believe in God and I did come to believe that he was evil. This was a real thing for me. Uh, but that's, I only came to that after once believing that he was good. So, you know, at how, how long do I need to keep that particular door open? And, you know, are you just as open to the idea that Satan may be good? Yeah, I think you should be open to, you know, following. If, if someone, if the opportunity will to, were to arise um, where someone could present a case that Satan is good or something or that, you know, another religion is true and that I, or that I've got the false religion, yes, I should be open to following that, to following that truth. Okay, so um, I would say that I'm as open to the possibility that God is good as you are to the possibility that Satan is good. Okay, so then, good. Then you, you haven't restricted your, your avenues. In that case, you know, the ball's in God's court. I, I think God will, my belief is that God will reveal the truth to you before you reach the point of no return, whether that's physical death it maybe the point of no return is at some moment in the af the afterlife. I, uh, most people, you know, I think that the end of these this worldly life. So maybe at seventy five, we'll be hearing your testimony that you've you've come back to Christ. You you're a Christian again. Who who knows? Like we <laughs> just just make sure you maintain <laughs> maintain those conditions until that time, okay. and then the balls okay, in God's so court. Look, I, uh, we're at, at near the 40-minute mark, I think, um, and, and unless half of this gets edited out somehow, and I, I hope it does not. Now, I've got at least another 20 minutes on this subject that I could talk about, or I could uh, take it to the, the listener uh, feedback and uh, the audience participation. Uh, so which is it going to be? Audience participation for the win. Uh, okay. So we uh, we did invite uh, the audience to to get in here, and it could be that they have something to say that uh, is more intelligent than anything that we would have said anyway. I want to start with Val uh, because Val is a, a pure philosopher, and um, he's he's very clever. Um, 
he's is that way of, is that your way of saying he's a know-it-all? <laughs> well, <laughs> he's cleverer than both of us put together. Um, That's true. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, and, and he had a lot to say here. So I'm not even going to begin to to try to read everything that he had to say. But he did have a, a take that made me. Uh, to, that tried to take me to task just purely philosophically and, and give me a way of thinking about following an evil God in a way that it still wouldn't be wrong. So if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go ahead and read that out unless you want to. Uh, sure. I, well, I think I, I can read it out for you if, if you want. I think we just... So, so yeah, so Val, Val basically says, is it more morally heroic, uh, the good choice to choose non-existence, not necessarily in his opinion. Um, as a being from which moral understanding and value arises, you are a, a way in which good manifests in reality. It, it's certainly not manifest, manifesting in an evil God. Uh, so your existence is a way of maintaining good in existence, um, even if it means pledging fealty to an evil God to be allowed to continue to exist. So long as your thoughts are still your own, and you nonetheless continue to know the good, then you are at least preserving the good to a degree it would not be manifest if you chose annihilation as an option. Um, further, you'd be bringing knowledge of the good into a place, God's realm, where it seems sorely needed. And he's done. Okay. So let me just, let me just say, uh, Val, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, there are a lot of caveats to make this idea work. And so the problem, and I will just, I will just jump down to Tara, who was responding to Val uh, when she said, Val's thought experiment is irrelevant. You cannot tell a white lie to an all-knowing God. Pascal's wager is absurd. So just going with the last thing that she said there, I fully agree. Pascal's wager is absurd. And so the problem with the vow proposition of uh, accepting eternal life and bringing good into some good in this realm is that you can't, you can't sneak it past the gate. Uh, because God, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, doesn't just command you to obey. The God of Christianity commands you to love. And so presuming that he has some mechanism to know whether you are actually loving him completely with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, then you could you could never you could never uh, trick him into getting past him. So you, you could obey him. You could be obsequious, but but you couldn't love him. And so we, I, I think that in this case, uh, Tara might be right with regard to the Christian God. Now, re with regard See, to I'm some little, other evil want... God, maybe maybe Val would be right here. Go ahead. All I was going to say is uh, I'm a little bit concerned that uh, me and Tara are in 100% agreement. That's uh, <laughs> that's a rare occurrence. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're concerned? I lost a night's sleep over it. <laughs> so... <laughs> so. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, un a little bit un unrelated. Uh, Tom uh, Tom Hilton says, uh, "Surely, if God exists and is evil, and you believe in Him, then you would be utterly petrified continuously." That is correct, Tom. And when I was a Christian toward the end of my walk, I did believe in Him. 
I did come to believe he was evil, and I was utterly petrified continuously. That is a good uh, description uh, of what I of what I was, and that that actually extended beyond the point where I realized I didn't believe in this God anymore. The fear doesn't go away uh, just because you no longer consciously believe. So uh, that said, um, take us to um, take us to Dark Journey's uh, comments, if you will, uh, because Dark Journey gave us uh, two comments that are worth uh, looking at. All right. So, so Dark Journey says, um, even given the seeming uh, fact that every Calvinist believes they're ironically one of the elect, it still does not deal with the paradox. Uh, there does exist the non-elect, and their belief about the existence of God is irrelevant to their fate. What is the difference uh, to them between a good God and an evil God? And the other, right. this the may other or one may not apply to. Yeah, let's let's hold on off, uh, on the other okay. one for a moment because I just want to touch this. This may or may not apply to how you think of uh, God because you're not a, a pure Calvinist. You've got some Calvinist tendencies, uh, but you're not a pure Calvinist. So, but what he what he's suggesting is in Calvinism there's a there's what's called the elect, and the elect are the people that God set out to save from the very beginning. So even before he created anyone, he knew who exactly who was going to be saved and who was going to be lost. He created everybody, but only those who were going to be saved from the beginning, the elect, those are the only people that will be saved. And the people who will be lost, it doesn't matter if they think they are believers or not. It doesn't matter if they think they're following God or not. They're going to be like the people standing at the gate where, uh, you know, expecting to get in. And God says, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you. You were, you were never in the club. So um, what, uh, what Dark Journey is suggesting is uh, that from the perspective of those people who are not the elect, but who do know there is a God, he is indistinguishable from evil. Because from their perspective, he's, he's just going to kill them anyway. Yeah, I, I think I, I personally, I know uh, some of my Calvinist friends... Uh, are probably going to be, you know, ripping their hair. But I think I agree with Dark Journey that the Calvinist God seriously, you know, just seems like an evil God to me. I, I don't think without the explanation of free will, it's inexplicable to me as to why not why everyone isn't saved. If if it's if the only factors are solely God's prerogative, then I think everyone should be saved. So, yeah, I really as as much as people are probably going to. You know, my certain Calvinist Christians are going to hate me for saying it. I, I agree with Dark Journey. I think that the Calvinist God is an evil God, in my opinion. Okay, so uh, Dark Journey had uh, another comment. I'll try to read through some of this. Uh, Val, ironically, I think most uh, Christians actually sidestep the question by redefining what is meant by good. One of the reasons there's so often a chasm between Christians and atheists when discussing morality is that they are often talking about two different things. For most non-believers, morality has to do with what is beneficial or pleasurable or at least not harmful to humans. Uh, uh, and for, for many Christians, especially those of a fundamentalist stripe, the basis of morality had to do with adhering to the desires of God and God's primary desires. Um, he, he goes on, but I, I think that's enough to get the point. I would agree there. And I think that some of uh, 
some of the difference between you and I in our, our discussions and our formulation of the good has to do with how we define the good. So uh, as, as uh, dark, uh, dark Journey suggests, I tend to think of good as pro-social behavior uh, and, uh, or, and or beneficial uh, behavior. And I tend to think of uh, bad as antisocial or harmful behavior. And that's, that's, that tends to be how I formulate it. But Christians don't think in those terms. They think in terms of good being the will of God and bad being whatever is not the will of God. And it's, it's very hard to agree on what is good when we formulate it so differently. Thoughts? Yeah, um, yeah I think you more or less characterize it properly. I, I would say the good is defined by God's nature, uh, obviously, his will is an expression of, of that nature. Um, so, yes, it, it can be, I, I guess, for me, the ultimate thing with just... Because I, I know your stance on this is that you just take morality... At, at, it's a brute fact that pro-social behavior is good. Let, let's not dig any deeper kind of thing. Let's let's just take that as a brute fact and operate on that basis. It, you know, same same deal with you know how we have knowledge in terms of moral truths. I I don't think that's good enough. I don't want it to just be a brute fact. We I, it seems like there's an ontological reality behind these moral truths that we know. So um, ultimately, you want to take it back to some kind of necessary moral truth. Um, you know, obviously from the Christian perspective, that's that's rooted in God's nature, and that's how you define what's good. Okay, so I I really want to launch, but in, instead, uh, I'm going to go to Ken. You want to read uh, uh, Ken? Ken? Uh, Ken? Oh, Ken. Okay, so Ken says, uh, assuming you both agree on the characteristics of this God and have access to reliable information on his actions or commands, uh, Deg, could you advise... Could you advise... Um, advise you to look deeper and argue that you are not understanding God's greater uh, plans. Uh, you could ask Dag if there's anything God can do to make him conclude that God is evil, or will he always assume there must be a greater purpose for which he is not understanding? Okay, okay so, so let's, let's take his first one. Uh, he's asking you, uh, he's saying uh, that you could advise me to just look deeper uh, and argue that my understanding uh is is uh, is wrong that because I'm not seeing the whole picture, uh, God is actually good, although it looks evil to me now. And I think that we spent the first part of the show running that experiment. Um, so that doesn't that doesn't seem to work because at the end of the day, um, once again, unless you give me some type of moral lobotomy. Uh, my understanding of good and evil is what it is, and that's all I have to, to judge his actions by. So if if something does happen and suddenly I think, oh, you know what? Sacrificing people, uh, innocent people for guilty people is good. I don't know what what you could say to change that or what I could do to change that, but I, I think his other... Um, 
point is is interesting uh, well, that before, I can, I can ask you. On, okay, go ahead. To that, um, I, I'm just curious for for my own because you know I, I've probed uh, about your personal circumstances. If you're truly open minded, and we've also talked. I don't know if it made it into the show, but la- last week we, we got into a bit on biblical hermeneutics with interpreting. Okay, is this verse truly evil, or what does it mean? Um, just just on the notion. Has there? I'm curious. Has there ever been a um, a time when you've looked at a scholarly interpretation or another interpretation of a verse um, where you by where you have uh, went? You know what? Yeah, I'm going to change my mind. They're right. This verse doesn't mean what I thought it meant when I first read it. It it this is a valid interpretation that makes better sense and solves uh, you know a moral issue where I think God is evil. Has there ever been at least one example where? You have been persuaded in your life many times, many times. Great. But I can I can tell you the direction of that uh, because I started off with a default of God is good all the time, and uh, so it's you know as I studied, uh, it went from that to God is evil all the time, <laughs> and so it didn't happen in one step. But the more I studied that naive idea of just giving God the the benefit of the doubt that no matter what he did, it was good, that faded away. Uh, and that's what, that's what study did to me. And so it, it doesn't tend to go the other direction, uh, I don't think, where I see something as immoral. But if I study it long enough, then it becomes moral. Okay, so you don't? You're, I thought you were saying there, is, there were exam, many examples of that no, there, there are many thing. examples where I've changed my mind based on uh, based on research. And, but and never in the direction of, of going from this sounds evil to uh, this makes sense. Like what, you know, I don't, want, example, to say, I don't like, want to say never, but uh, over the long heart arc of time, that's not the direction uh, that it has gone. Okay. So there, there may be some instance where I thought... Uh, something was evil and then changed my mind and decided it wasn't. Cursing would be one example. I used to think that that was evil, but only because God said it was evil. And then I, then I decided, even before I stopped being a Christian, you know, that's not actually evil. But gotcha. that was, that was um, you know, that was still a movement away from the default that God is always good and right. Okay. And so over over time, the more I study and the more I learn, the more I move away from that default to the other position. So there's, uh, by, there's by a... the way, that continues even now. I still study now. And the more <clears throat> I study, the eviler God gets. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I just I just wanted to see if, if there was ever an occasion where you you originally thought immediate, your immediate impression is, okay, this seems evil, but then somehow by you know studying further that there was a, a reversal and you said actually i was i was wrong on this one uh he god isn't so evil with this one um like a case with me is and i don't i don't this i don't want to get into this as a full topic but everyone knows on the boards uh you know like the the old testament genocide. that that's something that strikes people immediately as you know what the heck's going on um but it was through increasing my understanding i i did come across an interpretation that uh, okay yeah this, this makes sense this could 
could account for why this these types of events are in the Bible and God's ordering it, and yet God's still good. So, you know, I can I can point to that that one example for as a personal example. A lot of Christians would point to that example. I think Justin Brierley would uh, say exactly the same thing that you would. But I I guess I operate a little bit differently there because. Uh, I assumed that the genocides were good, but as as my moral intuitions developed, uh, I began to see them as more evil. Now I'm as familiar with uh, the the apologetics and the the exegesis as as you are that tries to make them seem different, but those always felt a little bit dishonest to me. I'm not saying they have to feel dishonest to you, but they felt like uh, kind of desperate things that certain Christians would do to try to save the passages and save their faith because they were because those passages were evil to them too. The, the God of those passages were evil. They wanted to continue believing in in that God, and so they changed, uh, you know, how they read those passages, and now they're okay. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Fair enough. I, like I said, I was just sort of. Asking, you know, out of curiosity, if if there was any such examples, but it it seems like you've you definitely you haven't had any examples in that direction, but you have had it in the opposite direction, and it's a clear trend, as as you say. So yeah, yeah, thank you for for answering. I was curious about that. No problem. Um, Same, uh, but uh, b- before we leave, Ken, and move on to some other feedback, uh, is he asks a valid question? Is there anything that the God of the Bible could do to make you conclude that He was evil? Yep, He could lie, directly lie. Um, he, if the Calvinist God is true, I, I think that would make Him evil. If not every person is saved, you know, if there's no human dependent factor involved in that equation of salvation, where whereby the human, through his free will, places faith. Uh, and and repents from his sins. If it's solely, I, I know this is going to sound like a mischaracterization, but it's truly how I sound. How I, I think it's true as to what the Calvinist position is. You know, if God just zaps you and you're saved, uh, He should do that for every single human being. Um, uh, another example where I would say it's probably evil is, uh, you know, if if a torture chamber model of hell is true. Um, I, I'm not 100% convinced in that regards, but I have a very, I think it's very probable that that would make God evil if the Bible teaches that hell is a true torture chamber in, in, you know, in terms of Dante's Inferno or something like that. So those are a few examples that would get me to conclude God is probably evil or, you know, so that, yeah, that's my take. Hope that's helpful, Ken. Yeah, and and I think that uh, I think that you won some points with Tara too, so that that ought to make you lose some more sleep. Um, <laughs> so so uh, let's let's jump over to some user feedback. These are people who uh, uh, commented directly under our posts at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com, uh, and they just went to the the latest post and they uh, uh, left a comment there. And uh, I want to start with uh, Joyce because Joyce uh, had a question directly of you. I'll go ahead and read that. Dale, I'm not familiar with uh, philosophical arguments such as uh, what you presented in part one. I haven't listened to part two. But 
I'd like to know what you say to Mormon missionaries who come to your door and speak of the confirmation they received through the burning in the bosom. And they say uh, they know for sure that the Book of Mormon is true. How is their experience different from the authentication provided through the Holy Spirit that uh, Christianity is true? I also want to say to the listener, Joyce is a Christian, uh, just, just so you understand. So she's not asking this from a skeptic's point of view. Uh, Dale? Okay, so in terms of what I was talking about in, in the program, Joyce, um, I was, David was asking me how I can know that Christianity is true um, despite you know, claims from Mormon. So, so on the level of how I would know, um, when someone has a, uh, a properly basic belief that's produced by the Holy Spirit witnessing and, and activating our, our set of uh, cognitive or spiritual faculties, you know, that are designed by God and operating without malfunction in a suitable environment, uh, that, all that stuff's in part two. So when you listen to that, that'll make more sense. Um, I can have knowledge that Christianity is true, despite the fact that somebody else um, is claiming they, you know, making a claim they know because they have a burning in the bosom. It, if I have one hundred, if I have a warranted true belief to a one hundred percent degree, um, that I that which expresses itself in the form of an irresistible inclination, um, you know, similar to Mormons saying they have a burning in the bosom or something like that, nothing changes the fact that I have knowledge in that case these mormons whatever they think they're experiencing they've deluded themselves they have an unwarranted false belief even if they're not aware of the fact that they have that and they're they're trying to be sincere uh, your question is more how would i show and i don't i don't think i could i i can't show a mormon that i have true knowledge i could you know sort of probe probe them well okay you have a burning in the bosom what is that what you know is that a a feeling I could explain to them what knowledge is in terms of a warranted true belief and sort of, you know, well, you know, which are you fulfilling these elements and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, when it, when it's at the level of properly basic beliefs, you can't really show someone, um, that you know something, um, that there's a distinction in doing that. I, I think if I were to convert these Mormons, I would need to go down the objective route and, uh, you know, get them to maybe question the fact that they're they're falsely claiming to have knowledge in that respect. So I would I would just uh, add because I don't want to I, I don't want to comment on that directly. Uh, I think Joyce is right to bring up the the Mormon burning in the bosom. Uh, I would also add though that that uh, skeptics can apply, can appeal to this same thing. Uh, they can say, well, look, I have the properly basic belief that there's no God. Uh, and I can, and I can feel that in my, uh, in, in my inner parts. And I, I just know it. So properly basic belief is not just something that Christians can use. Uh, and if they want to say, well, it only applies to Christianity and not to other things, I think, again, but one of my favorite words, that special pleading, and you've got to come up with some kind of uh, answer as to why uh, your properly basic belief is right and everyone else's is wrong. Okay, so I would, I would say this. Let, let's say you claim to have a knowledge that God doesn't exist, and it's a properly basic belief, so it's not derived from any sort of premises or something like that. I would simply go through the warrant. Um, okay, so there's no 
you can't appeal to a god who's designed your... This is a property basically produced by a set of cognitive faculties or, or whatever, um, you know, in a suitable environment and that are successfully designed and aimed at producing true beliefs. How do you, how do you know that? I, I already know your answer is you, you don't. You, you just, well, just take things as a brute fact and operate from there. Like you, you can't establish that you have a warranted true belief under atheism. Like well, I, I, I can't establish it any more than you can establish it under, under Christianity. But it's, I, I'm just suggesting that it is a sword with uh, edges on both sides and cuts both ways. Um, before, lest we begin arguing that point, though, uh, because they have part one and part two to listen to. Uh, but Joyce was, was bad. She didn't listen to part two, so... Let's see what she she has to say after listening to part part two. Let's see if uh, Uh, your answer satisfies her. I can tell you, Joyce, it didn't satisfy me. Um, We have um, we have a a note from Tony uh, to be uh, and he was commenting on uh, strongest versus uh, the weakest uh, argument uh, seekers view. Joyce was commenting on the rebuttal arguments. Uh, To be honest, uh, I think Christianity is right about the bad news in many ways. However, I think their explanation for the bad news is wrong, and therefore I don't believe Christianity is the answer. And for the good news, we have to look somewhere else. Now, I uh, I communicated with Tony this morning and uh, asked him if he wouldn't mind expanding on that, and I asked him uh, three things. Uh, where do you... Uh, I, now I'm not sure what I asked, but I think I asked him, where do, where do you think Christianity... Uh, oh, what he what he thinks the bad news is, where he, uh, he thinks Christianity goes wrong, and what the answer uh, happens to be, and so uh, we'll we'll close uh, with Tony's response. Do you want to uh, read Tony's uh, fuller response? Okay. Uh, oh, it's a long one. All right. So the bad news, sin. Uh, although I wouldn't call it that, I think humans can be pretty shockingly bad as well as good, of course. So, clearly there is something there that needs fixing. If we look at the world around us, I find it hard to disagree with Christians about that. Um, Although, of course, we might disagree about the fine details of what is bad and what is good. And we certainly, we would disagree about the origins of the bad. Uh, I think all versions of Christianity have to come back in the end to the eating of an apple, uh, and that is nonsensical. Uh, So what do the Christians get wrong about the solution? Well, firstly, what is the solution that the Christians offer? What is the point of talking of atonement through Christ's death when no one knows exactly how this is achieved? Uh, Well, listen to this podcast. But, um, and we'll see if I've done that. I don't don't know if it'll be convincing, but how how many... Nope. What? Go ahead. I said, hint, nope. <laughs> well, it is for me, so hopefully someone will find it good. So, anyway, so how many theories of atonement are there? And, and I didn't get into the, you know, like penal substitution or satisfaction theories. Right. I, right. I didn't get. So, if, There's if a, I there ask, are a lot of theories of atonement. We would both agree that uh, to that. Yep. And I, on that front, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I, I think I see it. The theory of atonement is sort of like a diamond. It's multifaceted. There are various elements. So, some of them are contrary, like the moral influence view. That that can't be true from a biblical standpoint. But but anyway, so so getting back to uh, Tony's response. So if I ask myself the question, what did Christ's death achieve? 
I actually find it quite difficult to come up with an answer. The world was broken before his death, and it still is. The founding of a religion, uh, some great art and architecture, I see Christians doing a lot of good things, and that is laudable. But if there is an all-powerful good God, why isn't he sorting the world out? Um, the solution, well, that's a big question. A lot of the world's problems boil down to inequality and conflict. Um, so I would say that the concept of the common good is important here, as well as some kind of unity of purpose. Uh, it had never really occurred to me to come up with a solution. Let me, let me just uh, comment really quickly on the first part of this. Uh, by the way, thank you, Tony, uh, for your response. And I uh, hope you write in again. Uh, that said, I- I'm going to push back on uh, your assessment that the bad news, whether you call it sin or not, even exists. So um, I-, I will take a very dangerous approach here because I know that there can be a lot of, a lot of pushback on this. Uh, you know how to get in touch, people. Uh, but when you see a lion run down an antelope and eat it, would you say that there's that that indicates that there's something broken about the universe? See, I I would look at that and I would not see something broken. Now, let's say uh, over time, you know, due to our knowledge of animal husbandry, due to uh, technology that we can come up with, maybe we could make it so that lions didn't chase down and eat antelopes. And, and that would be fine, too. But the fact that they do that now does not suggest to me that the universe is broken as if there was some version of the universe where that didn't happen. Even Christians uh, I know of would suggest that predation uh, has always been a part of the universe. So you, you can't look at something like that and say that it's broken. So if you see a human uh, who you know is envious of another human and wants to steal their stuff... I don't look at that as a broken universe. Uh, I don't look at that even as a broken human. I, I could, that's perfectly understandable. We can easily understand it. Now, it's antisocial behavior, and we would like to reduce that as much as possible, but it doesn't suggest that there is some sin miasma in the world that we're suffering from. Uh, so I, I would actually disagree with the idea uh, that, that we're uh, broken at all. Uh, Dale? Yeah, um, yeah. You, I think you guys know where I would stand as a Christian. I, I do think that the world's broken. There was, you know, the fall is a biblical position to take. Um, so, so yeah, I would agree with him that, you know, that there is sin in in the universe or something. So, well, and with that. Uh, uh, we will call it a show. You can write in to us at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Uh, leave a comment at the bottom of this show. We'll read it out the next time. Uh, you can uh, send us a uh, mail directly at skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Next week, we are going to uh, let Dell challenge me with uh, what he calls the uh, issue of subsumability. Mm-hmm. We'll explain it next time. Sounds good. Have a good week.